I spent the last 10 years teaching corporate America leadership and teamwork. Now, I've left my 9 to 5 job to help as many people as possible become leaders in their work and personal lives. Some say leaders are born, but I say they're built. This podcast is the beginning of my mission to create change on a massive scale. Join me and follow along as we explore leadership, teamwork, and growth together. My name is Brian Rollo, and this is Lead with Impact. Hi there, and welcome to Lead with Impact. I'm Brian, and I am happy to have you with me today. Looking forward to an interesting conversation in today's episode. We're going to be talking to Claudette Rowley. Claudette is a speaker, best-selling author, consultant, and syndicated radio host. She is the CEO of Cultural Brilliance, and she's a change management consultant, cultural designer, and executive coach who is passionate about helping leaders develop their organizations, and specifically using workplace culture as a tool to leverage performance. She's also the author of the book Cultural Brilliance, which is a great book if you want to learn about organizational culture and learn more about how you can improve your organizational culture. So I want to talk to her about all of these things. Let's jump right into it and talk to Claudette. And we are fortunate today to be joined by Claudette Rowley. Claudette, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, We had a conversation recently on your podcast, and so I'm really looking forward to chatting with you and learning more about what you do. So I'd like to open up with a really general question. How do you help people? Thanks, Brian. Uh, I help people by helping them have better cultures, have what I call brilliant cultures. So I work a lot with leaders and organizations to help them understand the culture they have and to really design the culture they need for them to succeed and really use the potential in their people and in their organization. A little bit similar to what I do, although I know you have your own methodology. I'd like to dig into that a little bit more as we go further. But I'd like to take it back and maybe you can tell us how you got to where you are now. What did your journey look like? So I was uh, in my 20s. I had two different jobs. And when I look back, these really set the stage for what I do now. In the first one, I was I was working actually for the state government um, for a department that had a really good culture, which is not something we often say about state government. Um, but this this place did. And I had a great manager, and I got to do a lot of really creative, interesting work there. And then I moved to a different state, and I got a job at a nonprofit. And this was a really large nonprofit. They've been around for a long time, and the culture was very toxic. It was very toxic. And what I noticed between the, – the distinction I noticed between those two roles is what happened to me. I was, was doing kind of a similar job. I did it well in both places. But my confidence really started to plummet in the second job because of the toxic culture. Um, And everyone there was very concerned about being stabbed in the back, being blamed for things. So there was just a lot of that kind of gossip going on. Um, So that that looking back, that set the stage. And what happened then is I got very interested in leadership. I started reading books on leadership. I didn't know what I was going to do with them. But I got really fascinated by it because I noticed, you know, having a good leader, a good manager made a lot of difference, even in a toxic culture. 
that made a lot of difference. Um, and so one thing led to the next, and I ended up becoming a coach about 19 years ago and starting the cons- consulting arm of my business after a time. But it was really those two jobs that got me interested in what I do now. It's interesting how seeing a little bit of the good and a little bit of the bad can actually set the stage in a way that can enable somebody to do what you do. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how, you know, even at the time I noticed the difference and and this was, you know, this is the late nineties we're talking about. No one was really talking about culture, Um, but I knew, you know, I knew there was something going on and I knew that it made a difference. Um, And at the time I thought it was more about the leaders, but I now know, of course, as we all do, that it was also about what was just happening in the day to day between people. You said the culture was toxic. And I think I have a good idea what you mean by that. And maybe our audience does, but can you clarify that a little bit more? What do you mean as, especially as a consultant, when you say a culture is toxic? You know, I think of a toxic culture as one, one that's really unhealthy. Just like, you know, when we think, think of actual toxins, right? We don't want to take into our bodies. Um, It was, this was a very, this was at one end of the spectrum, unhealthy, very unhealthy culture. Uh, And what you saw was that people, there was favoritism. So I can explain what was happening in this one. There was favoritism. There was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of backstabbing. People would sabotage each other. Um, And and it was, it was almost like your part-time job was, was keeping yourself protected, you know, playing the politics. Uh, There were, you know, there were cliques, there were in-groups, there were out-groups. I mean, it sounds like a bad high school. And it took me a while to figure it out. And then I eventually, you know, wisely, I left. Um, I left after a a few years and thought, this is, you know, I have a really cool job, but it's not worth, it's not worth being here. And so you left these two jobs to go out and be be a consultant on your own. What was your biggest struggle in doing that? You know, I I initially went into coaching full time and did that for several years before I became a consultant. And one of the things that was, you know, for me at the time, that was a big struggle was the marketing piece of the business that, you know, the actual business part of the business. So I, uh, I had never been an entrepreneur, you know, I went train, I got trained and certified in coaching and then started the business. So I really learned, you know, I think I learned the hard way um, over time, but did learn it, you know, how to market the business, how to really do that selling piece of things and get the word out. So that was the, that was really the biggest struggle at that point. That's funny. I was just having that conversation with a uh, peer consultant last week. We were sitting down and saying how the problem sometimes with people who do what we do, at least as much as we had noticed, is that we can be so mission driven and so passionate about the cause that we sometimes don't think as pragmatically about the business aspects, including sales, marketing, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's pretty typical. So you were a coach, you became a consultant, and then. How did the idea of cultural brilliance come along? So about three years ago, I went through a phase where I was pretty bored with my my consulting business, coaching business, and was at a crossroads. I even thought about dismantling the entire thing. Maybe I should just get a job somewhere. I don't know what to do. I'm not interested. I don't feel like doing this. And so I ended up hiring a coach, uh, someone I ran into at a conference, and it ended up being really transformational. And, you know, he and I started working on what, you know, it was interesting. I was having these new interests show up in my life. I was getting these clues, so to speak, but I didn't know what they meant. Um, I also had gotten really interested in things like if I could solve, you know, any problem, what would I want to, what would I solve? 
And it was really looking at the bigger picture of the world and, you know, coming up with a way to help people see beyond, you know, certain kinds of politics and divisiveness and actually solve the problems that are going on, which I believe we have. We have plenty of power, resources, knowledge to solve any problem we see going on globally. We just choose to not do it. And so I, one thing led to the next in the coaching. And one day I sat down and I did a mind map and I did this mind map of kind of, you know, just to see what would come out. And I looked back at all the information I'd been keeping on this chart about what I was interested in and what was showing up and what, you know, like new little passions showing up and areas of interest that I didn't know how they connected or, or related at all. And I noticed they're all on this mind map. And this mind map was actually about culture. And initially it was about uh, integrating culture through mergers and acquisitions, which is ironic because I haven't really gone in that direction. I've done other kinds of culture change. Um, I haven't done much of the, the actual merger work, but um, but that that's how it came to be. It was really that moment of, of working on the mind map. And then I, I started, you know, I created the process. I did a couple of pro bono projects to run it just in companies to see what would happen and tweaked it and then ended up writing the book. And we're going to get to the book in a moment, which is one of my favorite books on culture. Thank you. But I want to ask you, so was this the answer? So you were looking for something to motivate you, you got into culture. Is this where sort of you feel your zone of genius is? Yeah, I, d- I definitely feel a zone of genius there. And I think it, you know, when I looked back at all the consulting and coaching work I'd done, it was really about culture. You know, it, it, when we looked at the bot, I looked at the bottom line of the change work. It was always about culture, even if we weren't talking about it. And I, you know, I don't, at least in, in the Northeast, I'm in Boston or I am kind of the, the conventional wisdom amongst consultants had been, you cannot sell culture. You can't do overt culture work. It, you can't sell it. If you talk about productivity or communication or leadership. So, you know, I don't, I think that's changed now, but that was really what, you know, what was, what people talked about, colleagues talked about. So I had never really, had never really sold it, um, Overtly, and I also didn't have a process I could sell either, right? Until I created cultural brilliance. So, I would say absolutely. I mean, it's it's funny because of the kind of thinker I am, an idea person I am. My own thoughts are already evolving beyond cultural brilliance, but it's it's still definitely something that's still very fascinating to me. And I yes, I believe running large change processes is absolutely in my my zone of genius. Tell us a little bit about cultural brilliance. Yeah, so cultural, happy to, cultural brilliance, both the system and the book, are really about um, helping an organization tap into and source the potential within it. And so what I found, and when I looked back, it's almost every consulting project I'd done, is there were organizations leaving so much potential in the form of their culture on the table. Like it was just, it, it was completely wasted in the form of, you know, culture and, and, and in people and all this potential. So I wanted to come up with a process that would really help organizations and companies and businesses get that potential, tap, tap it, source it, and use it. And so in order to do that, though, they, an organization needs to understand the culture they have because you cannot change what you don't understand or do it well. They needed to understand how to, how to identify the culture they needed and how, then how do they design that new culture and implement it. And so the book of course, goes into a lot of detail we won't go into here, but goes into that, that actual process of, of doing that. And of, you know, it, it outlines a roadmap, essentially. But you know, when I think of brilliant cultures, I think of them as being really high trust cultures. I think of them as being cultures in which organizations, you know, they understand their culture. They know why it operates the way that it does, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, what's great and what's not. And that they're also 
adapting to change in ways that are that ways that decrease stress instead of increasing it and that they also look look to keep people learning throughout the organization and they focus on what's healthy in their organization and and what's not and they talk about that and work on it you said that some consultants told you that culture would be a tough sell how have you been able to convince people that culture is important it's something worth investing in Mm, I don't convince them, first of all. So that's, that, that makes it easy, easier. Um, so usually it's one of two things. People are coming to me through word of mouth referral often because they overtly want to do some work on culture. Um, so they're already in that quest. And then, or, or it's that someone comes to me and says, we have this particular problem and I ask more and ask a lot of questions and investigate a little bit. And then I'll say to them, you know, based on everything I'm hearing and, and seeing, this sounds like it's a cultural issue and here's why. And I'll lay it out. And then it's up to them if they want to move forward or not. Um, so it's, so it, you know, and I've pitched to companies for who didn't, who didn't understand it. It just didn't click for them. It didn't resonate and we didn't work together. So it's people opting in and opting out. They don't necessarily need to know the solution right away, but they come to you with a problem and you can give them the solution. They, well, over t- or, you know, the way I work is I, it's, I'm really having, I'm usually not even giving a solution. I'm running a process that brings people in an organization, not just the leaders, but people at every level, every area together to really over time reveal their own, right? An organization knows, they know more about themselves than they usually are either conscious of or talking about. So once we get into this assessment phase and this assessment process, it starts popping things open and people start talking about, oh yeah, and there's this and there's this and there's this problem. And they themselves start to be able to see like, oh yeah, we actually, we have a really low trust culture and we blame each other all the time, one example. We need to change that, right? So what I'm helping them do is put a system or process in place to help design that so they can change it. Uh, but they, it's, it's actually really great, fascinating work because they're pretty much coming up with the answers. I do my own, you know, I'll do my analysis. I can see things they don't see because I'm external. So that becomes part of the mix. But I like to think of it as we really, we, I guess we're co-creating the solution. I'm, I'm not giving it to them. Right. I think of it sometimes almost as the consultant being a, a guide, like you said, getting them from point A to point B. But, you know, yeah. we're, not, we're not the savior. We're not the one coming in to just deliver you the, this uh, miracle. You're going to do the work. We're going to sort of help you get there. Exactly. Now you start your book with something called the Brilliance Manifesto, which I thought was a great way to open your book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So the Brilliance Manifesto, which is chapter one, the beginning of the book is, is really about, you know, in a way building a case for brilliant cultures. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is why these cultures matter. This is what they are. And it's, it's something I put together because I really wanted to capture, you know, what I meant by brilliant cultures and, you know, what we see happening in them. Like they are high trust cultures. They're cultures in which people can exchange feedback. They're cultures that do focus on being productive. They're cultures that do focus on being innovative in which people can tell the truth. You know, there's a, there's a list of different items. So the manifesto really gets into ident- to identifying and defining what a brilliant culture really is, and then, you know, what it's not. So what's not a brilliant culture? Examples would be if you have bullying in your culture. You know, if your culture makes people leave, right? If you have a revolving door of employees, you have probably have almost certainly a cultural issue. Um, if your leaders don't follow up, don't do what they say they're going to do, if your leaders keep asking for more data and more information but never do anything with it, you know, those are all examples of a culture that is not brilliant at all. You also say in your book that 
most businesses start brilliant, but they change. Yeah. Why don't they stay that way? Yeah, I think they don't stay that way because it's, it's not as easy to build a successful organizational culture as some people might think it is or, you know, read that it is, right? Because we're talking about a group of people coming together with all their own sets of beliefs and mindsets about how things are supposed to be or should be, right? Their own sets of experiences. And what you really want to do, so in order to move forward, continue to let the culture evolve in a positive way, an intentional way, you, again, that's the key word. You have to bring that intentionality into it and say, okay, what's the kind of culture we want to have? How are we going to get there? And, and continue to have that conversation because as your business changes, your culture will evolve. As new people come into your business, your culture will evolve. And I think com- a lot of companies will start out with some great cultures. They're in you know, a startup environment. They maybe have a great product people come together, they're really excited and passionate. They focus, maybe they focus on the culture to an extent, but then they don't necessarily keep tabs on how it's evolving. So one thing I often say is that culture evolves, whether you're paying attention to it or not, it will. So culture will evolve sometimes in a direction that's negative because people aren't paying attention to it the way they need to. Um, and I, a lot of it for me is just like a, it's like a family culture. We all, you know, whether we like our family's culture or not, we, we have, you know, every family has a culture. We know what that culture is. We know the unspoken parts. We know the spoken parts and that that culture continues to evolve over time. Um, and that organizations are like that. You can have it evolve in a way that's great or not so great. I love that comparison. That really hits home. Now change is always, I think, as you pointed out, something that we have to deal with in any organization. And in your book, you sort of bring in a process, which I thought was very interesting. I think you called it adaptogen design. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would be happy to. So adaptogen design, I should define what adaptogen means because I I myself didn't know much about it until a couple of years ago. Um, Adaptogens are herbal substances like ginseng or maca, for example, that some people take to help regulate their um, physical systems, decrease stress on the systems. If they have an illness, kind of, it's something they take to help regain their health. Not the only thing, but it helps rebalance the body. And so I thought, you know, actually someone challenged me. I have a mentor who challenged me. She said, what would an adaptogen culture be like? What would adaptogen design be like? I'm like, oh my gosh, that is really fascinating. What if we could design a culture that rebalances itself? you know, when it's hit with a competitive threat or, you know, all the other stressors that businesses get hit with, they don't necessarily expect. Um, so adaptogen culture and adaptogen design is a process of looking at a culture as a system or a system just like any, like the weather is a system, you know, or um, the environment has systems, the same, I, that's what I mean by a system, literally, um, a group of interrelated, uh, you know, in the case of a business, a group of interrelated people and processes form a system customers, products, et cetera. We look at culture as a system and then we design, we analyze the system and we actually design a system that will allow our culture, our business to adapt to change in a way that doesn't really stress it out over the long run, that actually will help it continue to improve, continue to grow and remain healthy. It's fascinating. I love that title. I love that metaphor. That's perfect. Now let's talk about coaching a little bit because you said you ran into a coach that helped you and that goes into another question I'd like to ask who are your mentors so I had yeah I had I mean I've because I I myself have been a coach for a long time I've had 
you know, several coaches over time. Um, you know, I, I would say my very first coach in the late nineties, before I got into coaching, I, I worked with her to figure out a career transition. She was definitely a mentor. Um, I had a really amazing business coach in the, um, kind of mid two thousands who was really, really helpful. Um, I once had a mentor who was a, a local a local consultant, and he really helped me with the business side of consulting, um, and turned me on to some ways of thinking about it and 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 pursuing the business end of it that I had not thought of. So he was definitely a mentor. Um, Dr. Pat Basili, who runs uh, my radio show network, Transformation Talk Radio, that whole network is definitely a mentor of mine in sort of in creating the cultural brilliance concepts and ideas for sure. And then a coach, the coach I talked about is a gentleman named Harry Pickens. Um, so is a wonderful, amazing human being who's a coach, but he's also um, a pianist, a professional musician, and does a million other things. So he's a renaissance man. Um, and he's the one that uh, I worked with as, I, as cultural brilliance was beginning to unfold. That sounds like an interesting guy. Yeah, definitely. I love that question because... I find almost nobody gets to where they are by themselves. So it's always fascinating to, to me to see who sort of shaped the people that I talk to. Mm-hmm. Definitely. A couple last questions. If you could give a one sentence impact statement to the world, picture of being on a billboard that people would see as they drove by, what would that statement be? You know, I think the statement would be trust yourself and be kind, because I think although those are basic things, I think if we if we if we take action from the perspective of trusting ourselves and looking at what's kind, that changes so much of what we're doing, and I think that would make a big impact on the world. And I think of kindness, I think of kindness in a really pure state. I don't think of it as always being super, you know, as like oh I have to be nice all the time. I don't think that's kind. Sometimes telling the truth is really kind. Mm. Sometimes saying something really hard is really kind. So it's coming from a perspective of kindness and trust, self-trust. That's great. And you mentioned earlier that you were already having thoughts about something beyond consulting. So what does the future hold for Claudette? Yeah, not, I, you know, probably always consult because I do love, I'm, you know, I love to solve problems, you know, something beyond cultural brilliance. I think it's taking, the book was really, was written as, as I've described it, you know, for organizations, but. In the introduction, I talk about the power of business to change the world. If we change business culture, we can change the world because when we change culture, as we know, we change how people act and what they think. And so I think it's moving more into that space and, and applying a lot of these ideas on a broader you know, broader platform, a bigger arena, um, and really, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it'll be interesting. I have a new radio show in the works, um, changing my current radio show a little bit, but it's in the beginning stages, so I'm not ready to quite announce it yet because we're still deciding on the name and everything. But there is a whole, a whole next phase that's, uh, I think, starting to unfold, which will be exciting. That is really exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So as we wrap up, where can people, A, find you online and B, buy your book? Oh, thank you. So um, online, my website is culturalbrilliance.com. You can also find my book right on the website, or you can find it on Amazon. And as I said earlier, just to reinforce, I think it's required reading for anybody who really wants to learn about culture and how to affect change. And it's, uh, it's been influential on me. So I want to thank you again for writing it and putting it out there for the world. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Lead with Impact. If so, if you could find us on your favorite podcast platform and like, subscribe, rate, review, download, any of those things would be greatly appreciated. In the meantime, thank you for being with me. Go out, have a great day, lead with impact, and I will talk to you soon.